So we are in a series in the book of Philippians, and tonight the passage we're going to be looking at is Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be camping out in verses 10 through 13. So if you've got your Bible or your phone, go ahead and open to the Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13. I'll read it, and I'm reading from the ESV, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are hungry. We desire to be hungry, to have your word feed our souls, to edify us as believers, to entice us as those who are still being made believers, God. In the places in our heart where we have doubt, where we have confusion, would you bring clarity? In the places in our minds where we are struggling to interpret or to understand, would you bring us understanding? God, in the places where we feel uh, hesitant to know or to engage or to trust, would you remind us of Jesus coming near to us, the Holy Spirit being near to us right now, helping us to understand and know what your truth is? God, we want to rest in who you are. We want to rest in what you've spoken We want to rest in your goodness and in your faithfulness. And we want the word to cultivate us to be more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the words we just read in verses 10 through 13 were written by a man named Paul. Those of of you that have been with us for a while know that we're in a series on the book of Philippians. And Paul wrote these words while he was in prison in Rome. And he wrote these words to a church. He wrote these words to a group of believers in a church in a place called Philippi that he helped start who were living under oppressive Roman rule. Philippians is generally positive exhortations and encouragements to endure the hardship that both Paul and the believers that he's writing to are facing. Now the Bible itself, if we look at the bigger picture, has lots of different types of literature. You have wisdom literature, like Proverbs. You have, uh, you have the, the prophetic literature of Isaiah. You have gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You also have uh, poetry, like the Psalms. What we're reading today is what's typically classified as an epistle. It's a letter. It was written between two people. And in interpreting and in reading epistles, there are a couple of pieces of guidance that I've found helpful that I want to talk about before we get into digging into this scripture. The first thing in helping interpret epistles we should remember is that epistles are like reading someone else's mail. Move forward here. There we go. So when you're reading epistle, when you're reading an epistle, you have to remember you're reading someone else's mail. What I mean by that is you're reading communication between two parties who had existing relationships who had existing culture, who had existing context and things that we don't always know about. So the more we can find about, the more we can find out about the existing relationships, the existing culture, the existing context, 
the better and more faithfully we'll be able to interpret the epistle. The second piece of guidance that I found helpful when trying to interpret and apply epistles is that it cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Meaning, I can't take my common 2019 American understanding of certain words, phrases, or ideas and import that on what I think I'm reading in the text. This sort of ties in with the first, uh, first piece of guidance, which is we're reading someone else's mail. There's an existing relationship and context that we should be aware of. One of the most uh, challenging just realities of interpreting epistles and the Bible in general, and I wouldn't say that this is on the whole bad, but it's just something that we deal with, is verse numbers. So in the spirit of we're reading someone else's mail, when Paul is writing the letter to the Philippians, he's not writing verse one, blah, 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 verse two, blah, blah, blah. That was not part of the original communication. That didn't come into effect until about the 16th century. So I'm not saying the verse numbers are bad because it helps us remember where things are and look things up, but we have to remember the verse numbers weren't there. And one of the unfortunate realities of the verse numbers and the verse numberings is that sometimes it causes us to take one part of the communication, one part of that letter between two existing parties and isolate it from the broader context in which it was written. So think about this. Imagine I gave you a recipe for banana bread and I got up here this nice, delicious, good-smelling loaf of banana bread. And before I give you the recipe, I cut it up in about 20 pieces, and I throw those pieces all over the room. And then what you do is you go and pick up one of the pieces of the recipe that I wrote for you, and then you look at it and you think, yeah, I think I can make banana bread. And let's say the, the piece of the recipe says, put ingredients in oven. Most of you would not be confident in that recipe or that person who's going to make the banana bread. But yet, that's sometimes what we do with the epistles. We take one part of the entire context and story and we see the bigger picture that the author's getting at. Maybe it's joy or faithfulness or peace. And we think, yeah, I can, I can do that. But in reality, there's a whole context, a whole recipe, a whole set of instructions that if we don't take into account, there's a good chance that we won't arrive at the intended destination. So in thinking about Philippians, and specifically thinking about chapter 4, looking at verse 12, Paul mentions this idea of contentment in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he talks about there's a secret to contentment that he's arrived at. And before we talk about contentment as a term, I want to just define it, and I want to define it in a way that I think is faithful to the original context. Contentment, the, the phrase that uh, Paul mentions in verse uh, in verse 11, I think we can define contentment in the broader context of the letter as being able to rejoice despite our circumstances. So you see over and over again in the letter to the Philippians, Paul saying, I rejoiced, or he's commanding the believers to rejoice despite their circumstances. So contentment, I would define, and I think we can faithfully define based off the broader uh, criteria and, and context of Philippians, chapter, of Philippians as a whole, is being able to rejoice despite our circumstance. Contentment as an idea is something that, as a society, I don't think we've quite arrived at yet. Lots of ideas and solutions are out there to make us more content as people. Think about the amount of entertainment options you have. 
You have Netflix, you have video games, you have cable TV, you have all these apps and things that you can use to communicate with people. We can communicate with anyone at any time on any device. So anything, almost anything, our heart or our mind wants, we can make a reality in a relatively quick amount of time. I want some fried chicken, I get on Uber Eats, I order it, it's at my door in about 30 minutes. America as a whole is one of the safest and richest societies to ever exist. But yet, I think we struggle as a society to be content. I think we struggle to rejoice despite our circumstances. One way that I, I think we could maybe look at this or examine this is to just look at the depression rates. The depression rates in America have gone up 33% between 2013 and 2016. Sorry, the depression diagnoses have gone up between 2013 and 2016. That's according to 41 million health records obtained from Blue Cross Blue Shield. Uh, I'm trying to be accurate. When you're married to a mental health professional, anytime you talk about that area of study, I want to cite my sources and make sure that I'm giving accurate data. And to kind of further that point, I'm not saying that depression is a direct result of us being discontent. As much as I'm saying, it seems like all of the solutions, because depression is a global reality, um, all of the solutions we seem to have in America to try to throw at that issue aren't actually solving it. So, my hope for us today is that if we read this passage, and if we read it faithful to its original context, we'll be able to discover the secret of contentment that Paul mentions. And to do that, I want us to look at three things. We need to first try to interpret these verses in light of their original context. Second, we need to talk about what these verses don't mean, because these are verses, especially verse 13, that are commonly isolated and oftentimes misinterpreted. And then third, I'll look to explain or expound on what I think the secret to contentment is that Paul mentions in this passage. So let's start at verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice greatly now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You indeed were concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So in context, it's likely that the believers that Paul is writing to would lose contact with him over time while he goes from place to place on his missionary journeys. And so the term reviving your concern for me refers to almost this gardening metaphor that they had concern for him, but it wasn't able to be met because Paul was traveling and maybe lost contact with them or Paul wasn't able to get the communication they were sending. But now it's been revived. It's sprung up. And that revived term, we could also tie back to Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says we should have the same mindset as Christ, that we shouldn't consider ourselves, but we should consider others above ourselves. We see this further in other writings of Paul, like Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, where Paul says, as we have opportunity, we should do good to all, especially those who belong to the household of faith. Paul's rejoicing here is not rejoicing necessarily that his needs are being met, but he's rejoicing in seeing the expanding lordship of Christ. And one of the telltale signs of the expanding lordship of Christ is his believers, his church, the members of its body, we take care of each other. Jesus said very clearly before his crucifixion, John 13, 35, by this all people will, you know, will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So again, the rejoicing here, Paul is seeing the lordship of Christ extend, and he's seeing the church faithfully live it out. Let's pick up in verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Again, the, the reason for rejoicing here, go ahead, boom. The reason for rejoicing here isn't that there's a specific need being met as much as it is. And actually, if you look ahead in verses 17 and 18, Paul seems to have his needs met. This is 17 and 18. I'm not going to steal the thunder for next week, but just read it so we have context on what, what these verses are talking about. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So again, the rejoicing here springs from God's people meeting each other's needs, from the Lordship of Christ being advanced, and I could say more specifically that the believers that Paul is ministering to are meeting each other's needs and thus storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. This is where Paul refers to, this is a fragrant offering, this is pleasing to God. You're advancing not just the kingdom of God, but storing up for yourself treasure that won't rot or be taken away. This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42. Whoever gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, by no means will lose his reward. So Paul is rejoicing, not that his needs are being met, but that the Lordship of Christ is advancing, that the believers he's ministering to are storing up for themselves treasures in heaven. Now there's one word in verse 11 that I want to point out that I don't want us to rush past because it's something, again, in the spirit of it not meaning to us what it didn't mean to them. This word that Paul uses in verse 11, whatever. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I don't want to rush past Paul's use of whatever, because if we look at Paul's life, we could maybe understand what specifically is going through his mind when he says, whatever the circumstance. Paul lived a pretty extreme life. If we just take a sampling, I just looked at a few chapters in the book of Acts, Acts 20 through 23, Paul lives a pretty extreme life that leads up to his, uh, one of his imprisonments and one of his just trials in general, Acts 20 through 23. This is just a summary of what's going on in the life of Paul. Starting in Acts 20, Paul is preaching a sermon, and it's about midnight, and I guess his sermon isn't that entertaining because the person, one of the, one of the young men in the room while he's preaching falls asleep and falls out of a window. After that, Paul goes outside and raises the kid from the dead. So you kind of have, oh, not going well. I'm going to raise this kid from the dead. Things are going better. After that, Paul sets out for Jerusalem to do ministry during the time of Pentecost. And while Paul is setting out, the Holy Spirit warns him directly that he's going to be persecuted. So imagine God speaking to you directly, saying the next few chapters of your life are not going to be that fun. Things are getting worse, right? After he leaves, he's warned to not go to Jerusalem or else he'll face death. But he goes anyway, and he's greeted by the other apostles. So he's like, hey, I'm seeing my friends. Things are maybe going better. Then he gets arrested. Then right before they, ask, they kill him, they ask him to speak. This is an amazing part of the book of Acts. Paul is uh, about to get killed, and they say, do you have anything to say? And he basically goes into sharing his testimony. And he shares this amazing testimony of how he was converted. He shares his conversion story, so maybe things get better. But then after that, they still want to kill him. So things are getting worse. But then, because he's in Jerusalem, he mentions his Roman citizenship. And that seems to be a way of potentially absolving them from punishing him because it might have caused tension between Jerusalem and Rome. So Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You guys can't flog me right now without a trial. And so they, they, they don't flog him at that time. But then there's this interesting sort of passage in Acts 23 where the Lord speaks directly to Paul. 
The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. If you had testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So the Lord is saying, look, that whole like really extreme journey you just went on, we're going to do it again in another location. This is like if you ride the roller coaster at Kennywood or at Six Flags and you're like, wow, that was fun, but I'm never going to do that again. And then somehow they're like, hey, let's do that again. And they run it again. Like that's kind of the experience and feeling that Paul might be feeling in that moment. Like I just went through something really extreme and the Lord speaks to him directly and says, all right, round two. My point in kind of doing that summary is to, again, get back to this word, whatever. Paul's whatever is pretty extreme. His, what, his being content, whatever the circumstance, is not maybe the things that you and I experience on a daily basis. He's not going to Jiffy Lube and thinking, oh, this oil change is going to be 30 bucks, but then he gets to the register and they're like, hey, we found a bunch of stuff wrong with your car. We need to charge you 150 bucks, but be content, whatever the circumstance. No, his, his whatever is like life and death situations. So his contentment, his secret to contentment then, must not be a trivial secret. It must be something that can extend, withstand extreme circumstances. So that's the background, right? Paul's thanking the church for meeting his needs. He's emphasizing that he's more happy that they are being obedient and storing up for themselves treasures in heaven than his needs being met. And he goes on to say that he has this contentment. And this contentment that he has comes from a secret that's mentioned in verse 12 and goes on in 13. So we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 now and talk about the secret to contentment. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So before we talk about the secret to contentment, Verse 13 especially is a pretty popular verse, and I think it would be helpful if we talk about what these verses don't mean. So in 2009, uh, Tim Tebow was featured on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and he had on his eye black, this is something that football players wear to keep the uh, light out of your eyes, he had Philippians 13 written there. It became a pretty popular uh, phrase because Tim Tebow was a pretty popular person at the time. Tim Tebow went on to win the Heisman Trophy. I think the Florida Gators won two national titles while he was there. And Tim Tebow, for many people, is seen as the greatest college football player of all time. Another example, uh, Steph Curry. He gained a bit of notoriety recently because he released a line of clothing under the uh, phrase, I can do all things. And it was in reference to Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Steph Curry is a two-time league MVP and a three-time NBA champion. Now, Steph Curry and Tim Tebow are both confessing Christians. I think they both have good motives. I don't want to accuse them of twisting scripture to achieve their own gain. But what I want us to consider is putting these verses in the context of winning NBA championships and Heisman trophies and league MVPs, is it faithful to the original context in which they were written? What I also want us to consider is to examine our own hearts. If these verses don't mean that God somehow gives me supernatural power to win NBA championships and Heisman trophies, do we really want the secret to contentment that Paul mentions? Do we really want the secret to contentment over the ability to get wins out of life, whatever wins might mean to you? Now, to be fair, especially to be fair to both of these men, Tim Tebow clarified in an interview that the verse that he wrote on his eye black 
was about being content in all circumstances, not being able to make a better throw or to make a better play. So Tim seemed to realize the context of what he was, the message that was being communicated. The Bible itself, if you ever read the New International Version, the New New International Version, the one that was rewritten, the TNIV, that translates verse 13, I can do all this, referring back to verses 11 and 12, what Paul mentioned, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, being brought low and abounding. So Paul's point, and Tim Tebow's point, and the New, New International Version's point, seems to be that God gives us power not to do whatever we want, but to endure tough circumstances in a Christ-like manner. Now, if you've been in church for a while, that idea might not be extremely shocking or new to you, that this verse 13 means that we can endure or we can uh, withstand through the power of Christ all the things that happen in life, to be brought low, to abound, to be made hungry, because that's who Christ was. That's what Christ did. Christ's life was not one of just pure abounding, but of hardship, of trial. So if anyone is the picture, or if anyone is the example of what that verse means, it's Christ himself, that he lived a hard life, but he endured without any sin. So if these verses don't mean that we can just win or get what we want out of life, and they're a reflection of Christ, I wonder if, us, if we've really grasped that reality. Or if perhaps even though we know the context, even though we know this doesn't mean that we can get whatever we want out of life, that we might still struggle with the actual real life context of being able to rejoice despite our circumstances. Maybe we get angry when we know things shouldn't make us angry. Someone cuts us off in traffic and we go from rejoicing to all of a sudden wanting to say words that we know don't honor Christ, right? How many of us have really discovered the ability to rejoice despite our circumstances? I think we're missing the secret. And the secret might not just be in understanding the context, but understanding something a little deeper. Those of you that bake know that ratios are important. You can make cookies with butter, brown sugar, white sugar, flour, salt, uh, vanilla extract, eggs, chocolate chips, and almonds, if that's your, uh, if you like almonds, you can put all the ingredients in, but if you're off, just by a little bit, things don't come out right. It's different than barbecue. If you barbecue and you put a little too much tomato in the barbecue sauce, you can throw in some more brown sugar, and everything will turn out right in the end. Not the case with baking. Right? So, um, if we think about cookies as an example, you put all the right ingredients in, but it's still possible that what you make comes out like this. Those of you that have baked cookies before know that whoever made these probably did not put enough baking soda in them. They may have put baking soda in them, but they didn't put enough baking soda, thus their ratios were off, even though they had all of the right ingredients. So I think part of understanding Paul's secret to contentment, it's not just understanding what these verses say, the ingredients, it's not just even understanding the context, what they mean, but I think it's also understanding the ratio. This is what we'll talk about, the secret to contentment. As I mentioned before, context is important, right? The context of this broader letter is that Paul is encouraging the church to remain faithful and content despite tough circumstances. He then uses himself as an example that he's able to remain content, that he's able to rejoice despite his circumstances through the power and example of Christ. Contentment, again, as we've defined, is being able to rejoice despite our circumstances. And although Paul uses himself as an example of what it means to remain content, 
There's an interesting ratio in the entire book of Philippians if you look at the pure amount of times and the context in which Paul refers to himself. This is important because it's likely that this letter was not read in chunks or chapters or verses, but it was read in its entirety to its original hearers. A general exhortation and just encouragement I would give if you're looking to understand any book of the Bible, but especially an epistle, read the book from start to finish. Um, Or, spoiler alert, you can listen to it on your phone using the Bible app. But it's a helpful way of understanding how the general flow of ideas happens and not just chopping and possibly risking taking something out of context. So in reading this entire book of Philippians, if we look at the amount of times that Paul refers to himself, there's an interesting ratio breakdown. For example, let's look at Philippians 1.21. This is an instance where Paul, in one verse, refers to himself. He says, but if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what shall I choose? I don't know. That's Paul referring directly to himself. And these are often the, times of dilemma, the kinds of dilemmas that we get in, right? We have things in our head that, that bat around. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to work out. I don't know what's happening next in life. These things can lead to possible anger, possible frustration, right? This is where we can potentially get wrapped around the axle. But let's just look at the broader context of that passage, verses 21, 23, and 24 that surround it. For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better indeed, but it is more necessary that I, for you that I remain in the body. So in verse 22, Paul refers directly to himself. In verse 21 and 23, Paul refers to himself in relationship to Christ, And then in verse 24, Paul refers to himself in a relationship with other believers. What does this mean? I think this means the secret to contentment and the secret that Paul had to contentment is humility. Humility leads to contentment. Anyone want to take a guess? This is a rhetorical question. So... I'm really not asking if you want to take a guess. But in this entire book, in all four chapters, if you read all four chapters and you you highlight the amount of times that Paul refers strictly to himself in any one verse versus the amount of times that Paul refers to himself in relation to Christ or himself in relation to other believers, there are seven verses where Paul refers directly to himself. There are 47 verses where Paul refers to himself in relation to Christ or in relation to other believers. So what does that ratio mean? I think this is a practical look at what Paul meant when he said we should have the same mindset as Christ and we should consider others above ourselves. Humility leads to contentment because it puts our focus on what truly renews us especially in the midst of difficult and trying circumstances. Let's consider Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction, just pause there for a second, consider Paul's life, consider the things he was going to. It's an interesting word choice to say this light and momentary affliction. But anyway, this light and momentary affliction 
is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in Paul's world, the things that are seen were his circumstances, his imprisonment, the hardships he was facing, the decisions he didn't know what were going to be made or the next day that might come. Those are the things that are seen. The unseen is the eternal. And obviously we know from Philippians that Jesus is the eternal, the one whom God exalted to the highest place and gave a name above every other name. So we can see Jesus as eternal, but we can also see the eternal in the sanctification that Jesus is working in the lives of others. Again, look back at verse 18, where Paul says that I'm glad to receive these gifts because they are a fragrant offering to God. And these are the things in which Jesus said that even if it's just a cup of water, that we wouldn't lose our reward. So what does this mean for us? Perhaps we don't grasp contentment the way Paul did because our ratios are off, even though we have the right ingredients and the right context. Humility leads to contentment. And I think Paul's secret is not that he thinks less of his circumstances. It's that he thinks about his circumstances less. That quote is commonly linked to humility. But I think it applies here because humility leads to contentment. And thinking of our circumstances less is not a stoic reality. It's not being ignorant to our circumstances, but it's thinking of ourselves less just as Paul described in Philippians chapter 3, in comparison to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ and seeing that eternal reward being lived out in the lives of others. Thus, we can rejoice, as Paul commands us, when others rejoice. So maybe the idea that Jesus should be the source of our contentment isn't new to us, but perhaps we're not familiar with the practical outworking of how that affects how we view sanctification in the lives of others. So maybe in addition to prayer, worship, Bible reading, all good things we do to focus our mind on Christ, we could also find encouragement in being deeply involved in the lives of others and seeing their victories as a source of encouragement or rejoicing. Again, this is why Paul commands to rejoice when others rejoice. We see this in how Paul starts off the chapter, right? Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, listen to how he describes this, my joy and my crown, the ones who I take joy in, or the ones who I rejoice over. So Paul's joy was not just in his life, but in that of the church. And Paul was able to be content or to rejoice despite his circumstances because his joy wasn't just found in himself, but found in Christ and found specifically or practically in Christ's body, the church. Consider Paul's words in Philippians 2, 17 through 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So we see this attitude of being able to rejoice in others and being able to rejoice in the sanctification we see Jesus bringing in others, modeled in in Paul, but more specifically and more perfectly modeled in Jesus himself. Consider Jesus' humility while he's suffering on the cross while he's being crucified, while he's taking the penalty that you and I and every sinner who's ever lived deserved, consider his humility to think of those who were killing him at the time to utter in Luke 23 and 24, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
If anyone had an excuse in any circumstance to complain or to mumble or to not rejoice or to not be humble, it was Jesus. But yet on the cross, Jesus models perfect contentment, not seeking to get out of his circumstances, but honoring God in them, and we see it practically play out in how he thinks of and blesses others. Humility leads to contentment. And if this is to become practical for us, Maybe next time we think about grumbling or next time we find ourselves getting angry or worrying about something that we know shouldn't be worrying us, shouldn't be causing us to grumble, shouldn't be causing us to become angry. We could consider the humility of Jesus and we could take those opportunities to practice the Christ-honoring humility, which leads to contentment. One of the most helpful examples of this uh, was illustrated from a former pastor of ours our pastor had a friend, and his friend uh, lost his wife and his children in a tragic car accident suddenly, without any warning. This person was a Christian, and at one point, someone was asking this person who lost his wife and his kids in a car accident unexpectedly. They asked him, like, you know, don't you get discouraged? Don't you get lonely? And what do you do when those times happen? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Again, he wasn't ignorant to his reality. Paul wasn't ignorant to his reality. He said, absolutely. I get discouraged. I worry. I get sad, I get lonely, but in addition to seeking God and praying and reading my Bible, I think when those times come up, this is what he said that that particularly stuck with me, he said, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling lonely, when I'm feeling sad, I think of someone else who might be lonely, who might be discouraged, who might be sad, and I pick up the phone and I give them a call. Humility leads to contentment. So the secret to our contentment might just not come with knowing what's in this passage in Philippians 10 through 13. It might not also come with knowing the context of what was written, that this passage doesn't mean that we can do whatever we want with this power that God gives us, that we can win NBA championships or Heisman trophies. But the secret to contentment might also come with having the right ratio, the same ratio that Paul did, practically valuing, thinking, speaking about others, thinking, speaking more about Christ than we do about ourselves. Some of you may be thinking that that doesn't sound fun, that sounds hard, that sounds like something that's difficult, and I think now we could say in context that you and I and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, who died on the cross for us, who sends his Holy Spirit to conform us to his image, who brings other believers alongside us who can encourage us, whose lives we can look to for encouragement when we're feeling down that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, as we take communion, I want us to remember that humility leads to contentment. And I want us to remember Christ's humility, that he humbled himself, that he gave himself up, that he didn't count equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage, but he died a sinner's death so that we could be content in him that we could have his Holy Spirit fill us, that we could have other believers who are on the same journey as us come alongside us and walk with us and encourage us that we can be content in him.